I'm your host, Ken Lane, and this is the show where I bring on stellar guests from across the API universe to discuss, debate, and solve the latest topics around APIs and API first. Welcome to Breaking Changes TLDR, where we deviate from our normal weekly interview to focus on a specific topic, providing much more bite-sized segments for our subscribers to tune into. With Breaking Changes TLDR, we're looking to explore a diverse range of topics from across the world of APIs, but I'm really hoping to break things down in a way that makes the APIs more accessible to a wider audience. Today, we're going to talk with Internet and Web Standards contributor Mark Nottingham about the augmenting compatibility and competition by enabling service switching, or simply the Access Act of 2021, which is moving through the Congress in the United States right now. Mark had published a very thoughtful piece on this act, and I wanted to learn more about how he viewed this piece of legis legislation and really see it through the lens of Internet and Web Standards. Moving the conversation more towards an, a technical perspective than what I had with Kier Lamont, policy expert in a previous episode. Let's dive right in. Is the Access Act of 2021 a good idea? I, I think that's a great question. Um, there are, you know, on, on the one hand, it, it's really clear that there are companies that have the, these digital platforms that have an immense amount of power. And we have governments and regulators all over the world trying to figure out how to balance that power, how to make it so that it's not abused. Um, and they're usually using antitrust or competition law mechanisms to do that right now. So you know, their actions against Google in the UK, Google and Facebook in various parts of the EU, uh, Amazon is getting a lot of people's attention, uh, Apple's getting some attention. And in, in, in all these different cases, you know, it's, you know, and I think as I wrote in the, in the blog post, it's, you know, people think of the internet not in terms of, you know, TCP IP or, or Ethernet or the lower layer bits that we think of, you know, from a technical standpoint, they think of their experiences. Mm -hmm. And so they think of, well, I need to, to, to do some shopping or I need to catch up with some old friends or, or whatever. And, and those parts of the internet are in these platforms right now. That, that's what most people, their experience of the internet is. So the Access Act is, is one of these efforts in the US. It's a piece of legislation that says that uh, interoperability is a way to assure that these platforms don't have uh, too much power, that they don't you know, aren't abusing that power. Um, and that's something that a lot of people have talked about. And I, I actually believe that I think that that's a really good remedy in, in that, you know, on the internet, when we talk about how do we assure that no one single party can create, you know, what some people call a choke point where they have too much power, we have various mechanisms to balance that power. So if you look at things like DNS and how it's constructed, you know, DNS is one of those things where you need to have a single source of truth. But there is so much uh, calculation put into how DNS is administered and how it technically runs that no single party has control of the DNS. You have multiple root servers run by multiple parties. You have you know, a fairly Byzantine political structure around how the DNS is run. And that kind of gives you a lot of different ways to make sure that everyone has their say. It's not perfect, but at least you're not putting you know, control of the DNS into one country or one company's hands. 
And so that that's true for most parts of the internet infrastructure. You know, you you know, one of the problems you have in the U.S. especially is network neutrality because there's so few ways for some people to get internet access at their home uh, because of the way the legislation there is constructed in terms of the last mile access. Um, that's another potential choke point. But you know, in a, in a well-functioning market, you should be able to get internet access by a number of different companies. And that's my experience here in Australia. I can get internet access from a ridiculous number of companies and they're very competitive. And so that's not a choke point to my internet access. Um, but, but when you have these platforms that, that are you know, providing social networking or shopping or you know, various different functionalities, they have a tremendous amount of power. And, and I think most people are, are looking at that from the standpoint of uh, some of them gather great network effects. So you look at things like uh, Facebook. It, I have to be on Facebook if I want to get in touch with my friends who are also on Facebook. Um, you know, if I go off and say, let's all go join this other social network, most of them are not going to come along. And so I'm effectively locked in. And so that gives Facebook a, a fair amount of power in terms of, you know, once they get to the point where most people are on Facebook, it's really hard for competitors to come in and compete with them. Uh, it's, it's not impossible. It's just a very tilted kind of playing field. Um, and, and the other factor that, that comes into a lot of the discussions is access to data. So, for example, Google, when they have access to, you know, the click streams and you know, the various web bugs they have on different websites, as well as the search streams that they have, they have a really good idea of what's going on on the web and what's going on in people's lives, both individually and overall. And they're able to use that data to do other things and to you know, make advertising more effective or, or do whatever else they do. Same with Amazon and a couple other folks. And because that data is, you know, in their hands and only in their hands, uh, again, it's very hard for a competitor to come along and say, well, I'm going to come up with a competing search engine or advertising network or, or whatever. And so the Access Act is about uh, uh, using interoperability as a way to force some sort of competition in these, in these markets. So you have the idea that if you, you know, somebody has a privileged position in a marketplace, like for example, Facebook, uh, that they are required by this legislation to provide APIs into their uh, products. And then uh, if I want to start up a competing social network, or if I just want to write a little piece of software, uh, then I can go in and use those APIs to you know, interoperate with those bits of you know, uh, uh, Facebook social network without having to use Facebook's interface. Um, and so I, there's a fair amount of academic research. There's a lot of discussion around this. I, I think that's in, in and of itself a great idea um, that the data is, you know, not to pick on Facebook, but their access to that social graph is privileged. They're getting the network effects there. Um, arguably, it shouldn't be just, you know, for free. That they, 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 they can hoard that to themselves. And so... Uh, Actually, for me personally, the one that really annoys me is Instagram, because I, I used to be a photographer and I like taking photographs and everyone I know is on Instagram and sharing photos. But if you, if you look at Instagram, once you're in that little universe, you are completely locked in. You know, you, you can't even view photos beyond a certain point without having an Instagram account. You can't, I can't embed an Instagram photo on my homepage, for example. I can't, you know, get an API into my feed of, of, of Instagram photos. And so you're very much locked into this, this walled garden. And so the Access Act would say, okay, well, Instagram, you have dominance in the market for online photo sharing or whatever that particular market definition is. And that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down. 
but therefore you have to provide an, an API uh, that third parties can use. Uh, and so then I could write my little program and, and you know put the Instagram photos on my homepage and I wouldn't feel locked in or you know I wouldn't even have to have an Instagram account. Maybe I would just be able to go and scrape my friends' photos or, or whatever. The devil, of course, is in the details there. Um, so that's great. And, and I'm glad that that discussion is going forward. But the problem with the Access Act is that it sets up uh, a, a body uh, run by the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, to effectively write these standards. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there's some hazy rules, and I'm sure that this is, I'm not going to talk about the details too much because undoubtedly this is going to change over the lifetime of the legislation. It's not passed yet. It's just a proposal. It seems to be a fairly well-supported proposal. It has buy-in from a number of different folks on, on both sides of the aisle, as I understand. But it, it would require this, this committee to be formed. And then that committee would come up with standards and the, the target organizations, the target undertakings would, would be required to implement them. Um, so this is very different from how the internet as we know it has been standardized to date. Um, you know, it's, it's always been voluntary. Uh, this is effectively involuntary. It's always been very international, although, you know, certainly at the beginning and for a long period of time was very US driven. Uh, and it was very much multi-stakeholder where you had anyone who had an idea could come to the IETF and, and to some degree the W3C and say, I think we should do it this way, or I have a problem with the way that you've written that specification or whatever. And then you have a discussion and there's a process you go through and you figure out what the standard's going to be. And, and it's, it's I don't wanna portray the current internet standards process as somehow magical. It's not that it is uh, able to come up with high quality spe specifications in every instance uh, or successful ones. Certainly if you look at the RFC series and what's happened to the W3C, there are many, many more failures than there are successes. Uh, and, and it's not even that what these bodies do have legitimacy in kind of a government go governance standpoint, although there's a huge discussion to be had around what legitimacy is there. Uh, it, it, you know, it is multi-stakeholder. You do have people coming from various walks of life to participate in these discussions, but whether that's good enough for, to, 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 to make these decisions is often a judgment call. So in, in contrast, the Access Act sets up a, a body that's selected by the FTC. They decide who the relevant parties are and they have the force of law behind whatever they come up with. Um, I have concerns about whether that's going to come up with decent technical standards that are really a solid basis for the internet going forward. And especially when you look at the, the geopolitics of it, where you have already a fair amount of fragmentation on the internet and on the web between countries like China and Russia and, and Turkey and, and, and places like Thailand uh, and, and you know, Europe and the UK and, and the US. I'm concerned that this will further those forces where, where you can have more fragmentation because the US has decided that this upper layer, as it were, of the internet works like this with these APIs. Uh, China very well may decide, you know what, we're gonna force you to do it this way. Uh, and then we'll have two different sets of APIs or maybe multiple sets. Um, I don't think that's good for the internet overall. I also think that that puts uh, more power in the hands of these big companies because if there are 14 different APIs for social networking, 
only really big companies and big undertakings are going to have the ability to make sure they interoperate globally. Um, and, and a small operator, you know, the, the classic small person going off and running a piece of software uh, is going to have a much harder time. Yeah, that's not the web we've all grown to know and love over the last 25 years. So you think it is a, a good idea for government to be in the business of defining standards? Yeah, exactly. And and it's it's a design task, you know, with, with the, 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 you have to approach it as a designer. And that is is in, in this kind of environment, I suspect that good design is going to be really hard to, to, to accomplish. Um, but you, you mentioned, you know, the the competition creating these undue forces. Uh, the thing that immediately pops to mind for me is, is privacy. You know, this whole discussion is happening right now in the W3C, especially where uh, it's pretty clear that the, the market of browsers is going in a particular direction. They're shutting down third-party cookies. They're making sure that the, the, the user has decent privacy on the web because you know uh, tracking has become so prevalent on, in, in the advertising networks on, on the web. And then you have interference or, or intervention by competition authorities, uh, first in, in the UK and now in, the, in Europe, saying, well, Google has a lot of market power in advertising and content. And that's absolutely true. They have tremendous market power in, in those markets. Uh, they also own Chrome, and they're changing Chrome in a way that uh, uh, reduces competition in the sense that third-party advertising is less valuable and first-party advertising is more valuable. And Google has a lot of first-party advertising. That's all true. I don't disagree with any of that. I think that competition analysis is relatively sound. But it's, it's unnatural to say, well, the result of that must be that Chrome has to keep using third-party cookies or assure that the advertising market remains competitive in its actions uh, because it's owned by Google and just because it's owned by Google. That's, you know, that's a very perverse outcome. Um, and again, it's looking at it with a very much a competition law uh, uh, lens. In, in competition law, if I'm a, a, a dominant undertaking, if I'm a company that has a tremendous amount of market power, my actions can be anti-competitive just by the nature that they, I'm doing them, that I you know, am a large undertaking and I'm doing something that affects competition. That's a well-established tenet of, of competition law, at least in Europe. I'm not as familiar with American uh, competition law, but uh, that has the really weird effect of saying that this browser can't take steps or, or has to be very careful about the steps it takes to improve privacy, whereas every other browser, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, and so this, it's a really weird kind of new, you know, world that we're, we're emerging into where, uh, you know, to date, there have been, you know, internet governance as, as it is, has been largely driven by private industry and, and coordination amongst people who are interested in the topics. Governments have made countless statements over the years about how they need to be hands-off, they need multi-stakeholderism, they need to make sure that the internet is global and, and you know, the G20, everybody else has made all these statements. But now all of a sudden, uh, because mostly I think of these competition issues, com countries are rushing in and saying, well, actually we think we can do it better. And I'm not gonna say they can't, because I, I think there's a lot of hubris in the tech industry about how we run the internet. And it's, it's not acceptable to just say, well, we're the techies, we know what we're doing, don't worry about it. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And so I'm concerned. 
this is why web standards are so important today. They, they seem to be acting more like their policy than just technical details. So standards are important, but why are there so many that, ha that seem to have not stuck when it comes to their implementation? And that's the really interesting thing is we do have, you know, if you look at history, you've got activity streams, you've got RSS and Atom themselves yeah. for news distribution that, you know, these ways of doing things that didn't fit into the business models of some companies as so the companies decided to go in, in proprietary directions. I think messaging is another, uh, the whole history of internet messaging is really weird and it goes all over the map and we've got standard solutions and federated and non-federated solutions and proprietary solutions. Um, but often the business models, you know, drive people away from cooperating with other people. Um, so this is why I think, you know, these efforts are, the, the, the legal efforts are so interesting because if we get it right, then we can shift the markets towards solutions that are distributed and you know, user respecting and interoperable and good technology. And they don't lump all the power and control into a single company's hands. You know, if, if, if a competition regulator were to say, uh, okay, Facebook, you need to go and do activity streams, you know, and plus plus, and we had a process for deciding what the plus plus was, I think that would be really interesting. But I, I don't know if, if the Access Act is going to go in that direction, or if it's going to go in a direction of, well, take the existing Facebook APIs and make a few small changes and solidify those as the future of social networking on the internet which, you know, would be a pretty awful uh, result, I think. I, I think there's a real danger of us just ossifying in place the power of these large companies and saying, okay, you're in power. We accept that you're, you, you have this special role on the internet. We're going to put some guardrails around that, you know, but meaning, in any meaningful way, we're not going to constrain your ability to, to gather more of that power. Yeah, power seems like it will always find a way, whether it's corporate or government. Are there any industry-level opportunities to successfully define these standards outside of government? I, I think it's possible. It, it would be pretty weird um, yeah. because, you know, the IETF is a community. The W3C is a community. They both have rules about how you participate and, and how companies are represented, how countries are represented. And so uh, it, it's very difficult to go out and say, well, it's impossible to say I represent the ITF. Yeah. No one can do that. The only way to officially represent a position of the ITF is to publish an RFC effectively. Mm -hmm. Now you can have a you know, representation of the IAB, you can have a statement from the IETF chair, but that doesn't reflect the consensus of the community mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, in the W3C, the, well, there are a lot of, that, that's a whole other show. The politics of the W3C is a whole other show. But uh, it, it would be difficult. What I suspect might happen is that if, if you look at what's happened in trade law over the years, um, you, you might get a similar trajectory uh, in that originally, you know, you had the WTO set up to do, you know, uh, GATS and, and GATT. Uh, and that was an international, uh, uh, truly multi-stakeholder uh, uh, undertaking. It was, uh, you know, hundred more than hundred countries around the world. Uh, it took many decades to, to get to completion, but they came up with these treaties that were binding across the world. Um, since they were published, it's it's been really hard to get any progress on on trade policy. And so, what countries have done is they've started doing regional trade agreements. They've started doing bilateral trade agreements. 
Uh, and, and so especially the U.S. has done a lot of one by one or, or small regional, you know, you've got NAFTA, what was NAFTA, and now I forget the new name. And then you've got the TPP and so forth and so yeah. on. And so I, I, because of the, the, the lay of the land and the Internet today, where we already have some forces of fragmentation at work, um, I wouldn't be surprised if you started to have a coalition of, you know, I don't know, maybe the five eyes countries in Europe. Uh, and then you may, maybe you have, you know, the BRICS countries and a few others coming together and saying, okay, well, we're going to standardize internet together in these multilateral, uh, but, but separate uh, uh, functions, which again, I don't, I don't think that's a great outcome for the internet. And as we know, uh, when you get those kinds of negotiations going on, there's a strong, governments have a lot of interest in keeping them secret until they're done, mm -hmm. uh, because they don't want to have to go through a public consultation. They don't want all the different kinds of the noise that you get. I mean, let's face it, the IETF is a very noisy process and it's a very ugly process and, and it's very hard to control. There is no real control. It's just some guidelines that you work with it. To a government that looks really unappetizing, I suspect. Um, and, and so that might be one outcome. Um, what, and, and to me, that, that's a pessimistic outcome. The optimistic outcome from my standpoint is if Standards bodies can work with governments around the world to make them, to educate them and make them understand how these bodies operate, what value they bring to the table, and to say, okay, well, we're going to work on standards in this area. And hopefully, if we get it right, it'll have enough legitimacy and enough buy in from, from different folks to, to make the decision of these regulators really easy and say, go use that. Because I strongly suspect that most regulators don't want to intervene. Uh, they don't want to go and make a market intervention unless they really have to, uh, because they know they can get it wrong. If you look at the history of regulation, there are a lot of disasters out there. You know, you know the Volkswagen diesel stuff. Um, you know, uh, the oil uh, drilling in the in the Gulf. You know, there are a lot of regulatory failures around the world. So, if we can provide them with a plausible solution that represents some amount of consensus, doesn't have to be perfect. Not everybody has to be happy, but it has to be good enough that it can be plausible. Then I think that could be a really good outcome. But that would require uh, a lot of hard decisions to be made and a lot of work to be done. Uh, right now, we've got the advertising folks participating in the W3C, and there's a gulf between the advertising world and, and the browser folks and, and a lot of other people at W3C about privacy on the web. Uh, whether we can figure out a solution there, keeping in mind that we've tried a number of times already with DNT and P3P and other things. Uh, it, it's a good question. Yeah, I get it. These things take time. And I really hope politicians realize that they have to be in it for, for the long haul. How long did it take to go from HTTP 1.1 to HTTP 3? It was more than a decade, yeah. And much more, it was around 15 years, I think, or maybe more. Um, but I think that shows that the incentives of the people who are implementing and using these standards have so much to do with how they go. You know, when the browser vendors decided we want to do quick, we need this, it was easy to get everything lined up, relatively easy uh, and, and moving and everybody was in the room and we came to consensus on it and we shipped. Same with HTTP2. HTTP2 was a wonderful process and it took two years. Uh, we came up with a whole new version of, of HTTP in two years and we were only 16 days over our charter time period for it. Um, so it, it's possible when the incentives are lined up. 
I think the question is whether the internal incentives of these folks can be substituted with an external incentive of a regulator breathing down their neck. Um, and that's going to be, it would be interesting to see. Yeah, I can't imagine that will be a fun relationship to manage uh, on either side. So I'm wondering, is there any way that we can speed up the standards body process? Yeah, this is one of the main problems with you know, truly open consensus-based standards is, is that they are by necessity uh, very difficult to be forward-looking. Uh, they tend to be backwards-looking. You know, they, they're much better at consolidating current practice than they are innovating. We have done it. You know, we, we, you know, Google came up with Quick, and we standardized Quick over you know a couple of years. I think it was about three years. That's very quick for the standards world. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's acceptable to you know the regulators, but it's it's very quick for us. In my experience, the government doesn't move very fast when it comes to technology, but I have seen some areas where they've gotten better at tech lately. So who needs to be helping increase uh, the education awareness of standards to make all of this more feasible? It's possible for the ITF and W3C, certainly in their interest to do so. Uh, And I'm arguing for it in those bodies. Uh, Other people are as well. It's a long process because you have to come to some consensus internally. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also, I I, I think that there's value, you know, there are already folks in the trade world who understand the value of standards very deeply. And they see that as a way to facilitate international trade and data flows and so forth. Um, They, I think, have an interest in making sure that, that the governments don't act unilaterally. And so I think that getting them on board would be good as well. Internet, web, and standards training uh, and awareness is really going to keep being critical for government, for business leaders, and anyone who's going to be shaping these policies. So to get at some of the motivations behind this, do you really think that maybe this is about government trying to reclaim some of the power that they've lost to big tech lately? It's too early to tell. Uh, you know, there are a lot of discussions about data sovereignty and data localization. Uh, people are trying to understand what the right balance of, of the different powers are to make sure that there is, you know, uh, it affects so many different things such as trade and privacy and competition. And I think that just reflects that the Internet is now part of everyone's or, or most people's lives so intrinsically that it's touching on so many different parts of the human experience. And so it's going to get messy. Yeah, it feels like that sums up the state of things and and kind of the way it's going to be for some time now. I guess, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? I'm still learning so much. So I, you know, grew up as, as a techie, you know, as a technical person. I went into standards relatively early. In the last couple of years, I've been spending a lot of time uh, learning more about the law and regulation and stuff because it's so obvious that this is going to be part of our world for the foreseeable future. This is not going to go away. Uh, And I think there are real questions around what the appropriate governance mechanism for the internet is for the foreseeable future. Um, I'm I'm not going to stand up and say that it has to be the ITF and W3C because they're very much imperfect organizations that were suitable for a time, uh, I think they can be part of what is the future. But, you know, there are a lot of different constraints and a lot of different forces at work here, and it's not clear how it's all going to end up. But if we end up with an internet that is fragmented and, and in the hands of a few big companies, that's that's not great. Yeah, that's not the future I want. 
Well, thanks for sharing your view of the Access Act, Mark. This really demonstrates for me the role that the internet, web, and APIs are playing when it comes to both business and government. And it's an intersection that we're only going to see grow more busier and congested as the government finds itself playing a more leading role in how it all works. I really appreciate everyone joining us today. You can subscribe to Breaking Changes TLDR segments as well as full full Breaking Changes episodes on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Or you can head over to postman.com slash events slash Breaking Changes for more information.